And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thanks for joining us. I greatly appreciate it when you join us here on this program every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., but then again on Monday mornings at 1 a.m. I know it's early here, but... Not so early where my guest is uh, is uh, from today. I will introduce her to you in just a moment. We want to remind you of the podcast as well as we stream those uh, three times live uh, at 7 a.m., 7 p.m. on Sunday and 1 a.m. on Monday. So the podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, a bunch of other locations. And uh, we have a link to our guest website. We'll be giving you our guest website in just a few moments as well so that you can continue your evolutionary process. And if you like what we're doing here, you like the guests we're bringing on, you like some of the conversation that we are uh, bringing forth, and you'd like to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate that. All you have to do is go to... Um, the the website uh, the podcast I should say the podcast and uh, you can basically uh, uh, do your thing and f- as far as supporting us financially PayPal Patreon go there it's secure uh, that's why I'm using Patreon and PayPal uh, for both your benefit as well as mine today we're going to be talking about <clears throat> I, I love the I love the title of her book. Uh, I would have worded it differently only because of the the term uh, the, the the phrase that I created on this program. However, it doesn't work as well in print. It works better the way her title is on the cover of her book, Thriving, Not Surviving. These are the five secret pathways to happiness, success, as well as and fulfillment. And my guest is the author, Gina Gardner, all the way from the UK. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Now, the phrase that I usually use, the way I put it, is that we want to move from survival to thrival. Now, I know that's not really a word, but I'm hoping maybe by 2030 it'll be in the Webster's. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Uh, But really, that's what we are talking about, moving forward. Because you and I both know, and maybe we've even experienced this experienced this from time to time, we're getting really, really tired of surviving from minute to hour to day to week to month to year. Um, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous. It's you know, you, we, we talk about the rat race uh, and all of the other uh, catchphrases that you want to talk about. It's like, what, what what kind of a life is that? I mean, for a rat, it's great if they like to race. But for human beings, really? Is that what we were created for, to be consumer producers, uh, to work nine to five, um, to in, in the United States, to live the American dream? I don't know what the British dream is uh, or the UK dream is, <laughs> but it just seems to me like We've been going down the wrong road for so long that, you know, there's almost this sense of there are people who don't want it to end. I mean, you're hearing here we are in the the age of COVID uh, and um, they want everything to be just like it was. And I sit here elated over them doing something different this time. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the influenza, you know how it circles the globe every year and we do nothing. Oh, get your flu, flu shot. That's what we'll do. And we do that every year. People still die. People still get the virus. 
Why don't you shut the airlines down, shut transportation down for two weeks? Two weeks. How big of an impact could two weeks have as compared to from the time you and I are conversing two and a half to three months? Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. And so I'm wondering in this and I'll call it the the time of <laughs> Corona. Um, are you thriving right now? My view is that so far as I know, I've just got this one life. And so my choice, and it is an active choice, is to thrive. And I think one of the things that makes the difference between people who just survive and those people who thrive is that they recognize that the quality of our thoughts drives our emotions, it's driven by our beliefs, it drives our actions and our language. And it's our choice whether we choose to look at what's lacking and the things we can't do and all of the things that are wrong, or we choose to recognize the things we can do, be grateful for those things um, which we enjoy and which give us pleasure and make an active choice to live the best life that we can. And, you know, I've had my challenges. I've learned to walk twice as an adult. Um, you know, it's not that I've sailed through life and life has been easy, but I do recognize and I've got an absolute examples of where that mindset of I can and I will makes such a qualitative difference to the quality of life that we have. When did this concept, if you will, first come to you? When were you first made aware or become aware of this aspect of, of wanting to thrive and not just survive? I think, like many things, that you have a consciousness of it before you have a language that matches it. So... Um, I ran a school for the most part from a wheelchair for 20 years. And I could have focused very easily on what I couldn't do and have I've sat at home and done nothing. But my, my recognition was that if I was going to live a, a, a complete life, then I had to do something differently. Part of it comes from my upbringing. You know, if I was ever fed up or bored or unhappy, my parents' view was go and do something useful, go and get on with something that interests you and ideally something that will help someone else. And that's been really important for me. Um, but I think that the time that it really became very clear to me that I had an active choice to make was after a second failed back surgery when having learned to walk um, to the bottom of my very small garden and that taken me 18 months i'd been out of, uh, been able to do that for three months when i ruptured another disc and had failed back surgery for the second time and so i came out of hospital if somebody hadn't left uh, filled the kettle and put a cup on the side i couldn't make a cup of tea um so four days after being uh, out of hospital i went to school and I did something that I loved, that I was good at, that um, my mouth, my brain, my hands worked, and there were other people to do the heavy lifting. And I recognized, I think, it, at that time, it stopped, stopped being something that was just a, uh, what I did to be actively recognizing that it was my choice to focus on what I could do. It was my choice um, to be happy 
in any day because even when things were bleak and there were times when they were the sun still shone the flowers still flowered I still had good plumbing I still had good friends and family and so I could choose to collect gratitudes during the day I could choose to be happy I could choose to do things that that made me feel fulfilled and that's true for anybody you choose to collect gratitudes tell me about that our brain is rather like an old-fashioned record um, and we get stuck in the groove of our thinking and our actions and our behaviours. The research shows that 95% of our thoughts don't actually cross our conscious mind at all, that they, um, they go into these habitual um, circular thought processes which are the same. So when things happen, we react to them without conscious thought. We get triggered and then we react to those. Collecting gratitude is a great way to recalibrate the brain. And it's very simple, costs nothing. Um, the way to do it is, is from the moment you wake up until just before you go to sleep is to notice things which give you pleasure, which make you feel positive. Um, and when you do that at you are in the moment. And actually that's the only thing we've got because the past is gone. The only thing we can do from le is learn from it. And we never know if the future is gonna come. So let me give you some examples. Uh, morning, even now, is still like uh, resurrection rather than getting up because I, that's when I feel uh, I'm stiff, I hurt. Um, and you know, I, I really struggle in those first, that, that first part of the morning. So for me, every morning my first gratitude is when I get under a really hot shower and then I make a cup of tea and I look out at my garden and my cat makes me laugh and it could be that somebody gives phones me and says hi or it could be that I read a good book or enjoy a good meal I make collecting gratitudes very easy and I collect them all the way through the day and then just before I go to sleep I scan the day and I choose my top five so as you go to sleep, you're going to sleep on a brain that is focusing on the positive. And I've used this now with hundreds of clients. And one of the interesting thing is within a couple of weeks, clients who've been depressed, anxious, stressed, start to report that they're feeling more positive. Now, it's not the only thing they do, but it's one of the, the really simple strategies that I give pretty well everybody because it makes you notice things be in the moment, recalibrate the brain in a very different way. There are lots of techniques for doing just that, too, recalibrating the brain, in that um, uh, I, I am familiar with, because I had the great privilege of interviewing a, a, a guru, uh, a swami from the Self-Inquiry uh, self, uh, uh, Life Fellowship. They have a monastery here in Montecito, California, and uh, he he says that there's there is a school in England that teaches Sanskrit, mm -hmm. not necessarily for the purposes of using it in day to day life. I don't know where you would, but for the purposes of recalibrating the brain, rewriting the neural pathways. Yes. For thinking differently. That's just one. What are some of the methods uh, that you have found? in your work that have uh, helped p 
people to, so to speak, rewrite those synapses, those those neural nets, that neural network, if you will, uh, that has helped them to move into that space of thriving and out of that space of just surviving? Um, so there are lots of things. Our perception creates our reality, okay? Now, it's not the only reality, but it is our reality. So, and our perception is based on our beliefs, and our beliefs are often installed when we're very little, and often because of a chance remark, and we believe it's true, and then we look for evidence uh, that it's true, and we make it true. So, give you an example. You're in a park, there's a, a dog, and there's two people. The dog approaches the first person, who says to the dog, Hello, boy, you're just like the dog I had when I was little, knows exactly how to approach the dog, the dog wags its tail, their belief that all dogs are friendly is, is confirmed. The other person was bitten when they were small. When the dog appears and comes close to them, they start to squeal and wave their arms. The dog gets frightened and growls. Their belief that all dogs are a threat is confirmed. And so one of the ways to recalibrate your brain is to question your beliefs and your perceptions and to also question the motive that you assume. So if somebody walks down the road um, by you that you know, and they don't say hello, is your first thought, how rude, or have I done something to upset them? Or is it, I wonder what's going on, are they all right? And so the thought process is behind the way in which we, um, we deal with our beliefs, our perceptions and our, mo our understanding of motive all have a huge impact on our sense of well-being and sense of self. And so part of that thriving, that recalibration, is first of all awareness and recognize, as I say, your beliefs are not necessarily cast in stone. You know, are they serving you? If you believe you're not good enough, you're too fat, you're too tall, you're not rich enough, you're too young, too old, that's your reality. And you'll make decisions and choices based on that reality. If you believe you can't, it's a done deal. Mm. Believe that you might not be able to. You're going to make different decisions to the belief that I will succeed, but I don't quite know how yet. So mm. you may be familiar with Roger Bannister. Mm -hmm. I mean, he ran the first four-minute mile. Yeah. But many people aren't familiar with the fact that he was told before he ran the four minute mile that if he ran that fast, he would die because he wouldn't get enough oxygen. Now, when you look at the full film footage, there are men in white coats holding oxygen bottles in the vain hope that they'd be able to resuscitate him. Now, I find it fascinating that within that not only did he do it, best bearing in mind the risk that he was told he was running, but what interests me more is that within 30 days of him running that fast, over 30 other people had done the same. <laughs> Why? Because they believed it was possible. Yeah. yeah. And if I may, I'd like to share a, a personal story which is quite pivotal for me in terms of recognising that I was self-limiting. Now, you need to take on board here that I was the principal of a large school and I ran my large school mainly from a wheelchair. Whilst I was a serving principal, I worked for the government as an advisor and I worked for the National College of Leadership and the London Institute as a trainer facilitator. Not all at the same time, mm -hmm. but to bring a budget into school. 
and I travelled country in my wheelchair. But when I retired from hedge, uh, the principalship in 2004, um, I wanted to study uh, neuro-linguistic programming um, and I went off to do the course and having done all of my training with them, I decided to go and see as many people using NLP as possible. And I ended up at the Excel Centre, which is a big conference um, centre in the East End of London, on a Tony Robbins course. Now, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to tell you, I was very cynical. I thought, huge American, lots of hype. Um, there's going to be razzmatazz, but nothing of great substance. How wrong could I be? So I arrived at the course, and in the morning, the first morning, he was talking about a programme that he was going to run in California. And I thought, I fancy that but I dismissed it. At that time, I could walk a very, very few steps. I had no travel electric wheelchair and I dismissed the course out of hand because how would I manage to, to fly um, to California, do the course all in a manual chair by myself? Uh, just thought it's not gonna be possible. Now, at the end of that day, we did the fire walk. And for those who are unfamiliar with that, you walk over hot coals in your bare feet. And if you're in the right mindset, you don't get burnt. Please don't try it at home. You need it to be done under very controlled uh, circumstances. I was thrilled that with some help, I managed to, to do the fire walk. It was the furthest I'd walked, albeit aided, um, for many years but I was determined to do it. And I was absolutely chucked a little mint balls as I sat back down in my wheelchair. The guy behind me was a double amputee, no legs below the knee. He tipped himself up onto his hands and he walked across hot coals on his hands. And that was a paradigm shift for me because if he could do that on his hands, how was I self-limiting? So that night I bought my ticket and I bought my flight. I went off and did the program, ended up doing all of his programs, becoming senior uh, leader uh, for him. I traveled the world speaking, working um, and for pleasure. And I can thank that guy for demonstrating very, very strongly that even though to everybody else, I was pushing the barriers and doing stuff that they didn't expect people to do in a wheelchair, I was self-limiting. And so my challenge to anybody that's listening to this is how are you self-limiting? What can you do if you really choose to step out of your comfort zone and have that, dis that initial discomfort um, and see the freedoms that come beyond that? As I was growing up uh, through my early years in school, um, I came up with a phrase for myself, and it took a while. And that phrase was perceived limitation. Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about someone who is, is legally blind, uh, you think, well, they can't do a whole lot because they can't see where they're going. Well, believe it or not, I was bicycling everywhere, got to and from school and this and that and the other. Uh, even had a paper route in uh, eighth grade and all through high school, all four years of high school. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Bicycled all over Phoenix, Glendale, Scottsdale. Um, I think I even rode out into Tempe once, uh, you know, although I always thought about the return trip thinking, OK, you know that if you go out further and further, you do know you have to go back the other way. <laughs> 
But that phrase has stuck with me from the standpoint of, uh, again, perceived limitation. It's only a limitation is if you perceive it as such. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that we are trying to get across to people on this program uh, in terms of, and I'm sure there's got to be a certain element of this in the UK. Uh, it's You certainly are seeing it in the news there from here. This constant dialogue about victimhood. It's always somebody else's fault that I'm in this situation, that we're in this situation, that our country's in this situation, that on and and I I put it in this context um, that and 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 it may not be accurate, but it just I don't know the thought came to me, and that is, it's as if individuals who take that position basically they're stepping out onto the railroad tracks, a train is coming. And they're blaming the train for putting their lives in jeopardy. I think that that's a really good analogy. For me, it's about taking radical responsibility for your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, your words. So if you're in victim mode, and many are, you're handing over the responsibility for your well-being, your emotional state. I mean, how often do you hear people say, he made me angry or she frustrated me? And people are expecting somebody else to make them happy, make them rich, make them successful. The trouble with that is you've got to put up with what they give you. And if they don't give you anything or they don't give you what you think you want or what you need, then you're disappointed. But when you take the, make the choice to take radical responsibility for yourself and everything to do in terms of your thoughts, emotions, actions, words, no one can make you uh, fail um, unless you choose to not try or you choose not to learn from that development. Nobody can make you unhappy. So for me, I think about we write, we are the writers, the authors of our own life story. Hmm. Doesn't it make sense to, to write yourself a damn good part? <laughs> you know, why would you choose to be the victim yeah. or the bully why wouldn't you choose to be the hero or the heroine? Yeah. And it, you know, people say, well, it's not as easy as that. But actually, that's a cop-out. Mm -hmm. It's the choice between, as you say, standing on the line and then bemoaning the fact that the train is about to wipe you out. Mm -hmm. Or deciding that actually you can drive that train and you can decide on your destination. And when you do, it might not necessarily be the destination that you started out. I did never think that I was ever going to end up in a wheelchair. And I still use a wheelchair now if I go into town or I go traveling. However, what I realize is that there have been huge gifts in that. And it's my choice to see those gifts or just to see the negatives. So the book before Thriving Not Surviving was called Chariots on Fire. The perception of most people is that the wheelchair was a thing of lack. For me, it's my chariot on fire. It enables me to do things that I wouldn't do otherwise. I have to say, I've always got it on full speed. It's never, ever on, on <laughs> slow. Um, and I can go and I can do a lot of the things that I would not be able to do if I didn't have that wheelchair. Yeah. 
Um, how miserable would life be if I, I mean, I've used a wheelchair since 1987. How miserable if the whole time I spent thinking, isn't it terrible I'm in a wheelchair? Isn't life difficult? Poor me. Rather yeah. than, okay, how do I, it's all for me, it's always, how can I make this happen? A sense of humor is very, very helpful. A warped sense of humor is probably even more helpful because there have been times when there have been some very strange things that have happened. Nevertheless, go into problem solving mode, solution finding mode, and you can usually find a way. Absolutely. I've always believed that there's always a workaround. Uh, and I learned that especially working with computers, but even before computers, I was uh, taking a broadcast course. It was one of those six-month vocational uh, programs here in the States, here in Arizona, uh, in Arizona, in Phoenix. And I jokingly say that I knew more going in than I did coming out. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had an experience when I was there where they, they were having a problem with the console. It wasn't working. And they were checking this and they were checking the tubes and they were checking that and the other thing. And I just, I said... Um, did you check to see if it was plugged in? <laughs> no joke. It wasn't plugged in. But isn't it but, interesting? We talk about common sense. Yeah. I have to tell you, I believe that common sense is pretty rare these days. It's not too common. Perfect example of how rarely common sense is used. Yeah. Well, I... Uh, I learned through that and other experiences, as a matter of fact, they were a creative group of people from the standpoint that they took this uh, amplifier and the engineers on duty there at the school. This was back in the early 80s, I think in 1981. <clears throat> and uh, that was when you had your engineers on duty. And they actually turned that amplifier into a makeshift radio console so that you could run different audio through it and so forth. Now that basically epitomizes a philosophy I have lived with for over 40 years in this business, but elsewhere as well. You work with what you have until you get what you want. Yep, I would agree. And when I was working for different stations through my career back in Phoenix, each one had a little bit better equipment, a little bit better equipment. And then in uh, 1998, um, I, I worked for a station that started to incorporate computers for automation. Went to another station after that. And, of course, that first station, they were actually building the computer, which I learned how to build in the, in the mid-'90s. I learned how to build computers. Loved it. It was a lot of fun. And then the next station I went to, they already had them built. They were already pre-programmed pre, uh, and everything. And uh, I learned how to use them and uh, got over the fear of finding that little red button somewhere on the keyboard that if I hit that little red button, it's going to blow everything up. <laughs> uh, and then moved on to one station after another after another until I'm now here in, uh, in uh, Santa Barbara, California, working with multiple computers. I now have online access to those computers. Um, we're now doing these kinds of programming and interviews with Zoom and Skype with our regular programmers, uh, which is really incredible. And again, you work with what you have until you get what you want. Now, what if none of these people wanted to do remote uh, broadcasting using these uh, platforms? Well, then we would be losing all of our programs, all of our revenue, 
and the station would shut down, I'd be looking for another job or <laughs> filing for unemployment uh, and waiting, uh, waiting until I could go out and look for work. So I find it very interesting that in, to, in this day and age and what we're f- faced with right now, there are people out there, and I'm sure that in, in England there as well, in Britain there, uh, Agena, that you've got people who are being unbelievably creative and entrepreneurial and yes. saying, all right, I understand that uh, this is the situation. That doesn't mean that I have to sit here and, so to speak, and, and just take it. So let's, isn't it, that during times of crisis, more millionaires are created than in times of boom. Oh, yeah. And why that is because those people are those that see the possibilities, that don't close down and start to say, poor me, what can you do? But start to really look around to see where the gaps are, to see how can I... And I'm not talking about people who are profiteering. I'm talking about people who truly make great businesses Mm -hmm. at times of difficulty. And it's because they are open to the possibilities. That's it. It's it's the difference between, you know, a door that's bolted and locked and a door that is open and you can see on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it takes a bit of courage. But ultimately, we have the choice. And those who choose to stay in their comfort zone – I've always done it this way. Why should I change? You know, the, we were talking earlier on about neural pathways and rewiring the brain. That need to stay in your comfort zone, to stay with what you know, is the hot wiring of cavemen and women. Because in those days, anything that was new and different was an absolute threat to your survival. Mm. But it's interesting, that same wiring is working today and we think we're so evolved but actually we're not um, and those people who are prepared to step out of their comfort zone open the door of possibility and those who want to stay with the same old same old they're going to wither and die because the genie's out of the bottle now and the, the 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 normal we go into is going to be a new normal we're never going to go back to where we were So in the UK, many people who were told you can't work from home, we haven't got the security, we haven't got the technology, now we're working from home very successfully. People who said, oh, I don't want to do technology, I don't want to do that Zoom and that Skype thing, are now doing family quizzes, um, group choirs, working using Zoom, doing international meetings without the travel time and cost. Things are not going to be the same, and people need to wake up to that and look for the possibilities. You know, that's an interesting thing that you say. And, of course, we hear this phrase over and over again, the new normal. And I, 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 the one thing that I am so fascinated by is the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, we did something different this time. We shut the country down. We shut the we shut the global markets down. We stop people from moving from one place to another, from traveling. And that was something different than what we were doing mm-hmm. with the influenza over the decades. And at the very least, at least this time, we will get a different result. Now, whether or not we like it or not, I don't know. But there are some people... Yeah, but yeah. some people are making the best of it, like you yeah. said. 
And it's interesting, you know, I, I, I talked to a lot of people and to start with, there was fear and that was the main emotion, you know, fear of the virus, fear of losing loved ones, fear of the unknown, losing jobs or being furloughed. Now, I don't know about in the, the US, but the next phase was people using humour. And we saw a huge amount of videos and pictures and memes um, and you know jokes uh, making light of it and, and getting it into a sense of proportion. What I've found that has been so heartwarming has been there's huge amounts more awareness of one another, of connection, of kindness. There seems to have been a recalibration from junk values about, you know, have I got the latest designer something or other to actually it's people that count. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 weeks ago, if you'd have said to me that you would find that the whole of the country, more or less, go out on a Thursday night at eight o'clock and they clap and they bang saucepan lids to say thank you to the NHS and the key workers, that's the National Health Service and key workers, that it's not the celebrities and the footballers and the, um, the superstars who are being fated. It's the doctors, the nurses, the porters, the kitchen staff, the shop people, the dustbin men mm-hmm. who are keeping us going and keeping us safe. And for the first time in my living memory, those people are being valued in a way that they were never valued before. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to think that the, the, those values, that shift into from junk values, which I think is one of the main reasons why there's so much depression, to true value of valuing one another. You know, the environment is has had a chance to have a recover. I mean, the spring in the UK has been absolutely beautiful. You know, we can see evidence of nature recovering in just those short weeks because we're doing something different. And I just hope that we continue. You know, that's one of the the things that I know that people are pointing to right now and saying, please do not forget what is happening in the natural world. And how Mother Nature is, quote unquote, bouncing back or recovering or healing herself. I mean, the first reports out of uh, Italy uh, several weeks ago or months ago, actually, was the fact that, uh, what was it, the dolphins had returned to the the, the channels, the, the canals in Venice. And they had fish in the lagoon in Venice for the first time in living memory. Well, for probably for a decade, centuries. Just amazing. Yeah, uh, it's it's just amazing uh, what <laughs> what is happening, and I'm hoping people will remember that. And you know, I realize there are those who um, are very frustrated with uh, the way things have gone economically, but maybe that's a sign for us that maybe we need to think of new ways of doing things. I realize there are those who are so pro-oil. They do, they're saying there is no way you can stop uh, the, the petroleum industry. You just can't do that because too many things are made from petroleum oil. Well, 
that's fine. We can still make stuff from it, but do we have to keep burning it? I think we've been living in a throwaway society. We've been so profligate with resources. We've assumed that they are infinite and they're not. And, you know, every generation that you look back on has in some way improved things, we think, for the next generation moving forward. And I think that if you look at what happened in, you know, in the in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, that we have that that's been turned on its head. Mm. That you know, there is there are things we have been measuring success by material things, and the casualty I think have been for me the things that are really important, which are things like relationships, relationship with ourselves. And every relationship we have is reflected in the relationship we have with ourselves. The relationship we have with with, with the earth, mother nature. And we, I just hope we're going to do something different because time is running out, yeah. isn't it? If we carry on doing what we have been doing, then we're going to run out and future generations will have nothing. Well, here in the United States, we have... Um, a couple of documents that go along with our Constitution. One's the preamble to it, and one is the Declaration of Independence. And in those documents, it talks about these uh, inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in the, uh, I believe it's the preamble, it talks about, uh, no, I take that back. I think this is the Declaration of Independence. It talks about, um, uh, to it talks about promoting the general welfare mm-hmm. and it also talks about securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves present generation and yeah. our posterity future generations so i've been asking the question of my guests over the last few weeks on this program how do you balance the inalienable rights of life and liberty, freedom and individuality with the concept of uh, uh, promoting the general welfare and preserving for our posterity. Now, you don't have to use those words. I don't know what documents uh, England is under, but these concepts are universal. These two concepts and they're not diametrically opposed. I, I did an interview not long ago where we talked about that, and I, I sort of realized that it's okay to be an individual, but to what extent are you an individual uh, when you forsake the general welfare of your community, of your state, of your nation, of the world? Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of thriving, not surviving? I think it's very clear to me that, yes, you have a right to be, we are each unique, there's only one of us, um, that we have a right to happiness. However, I think it has to come with the radical responsibility that we do it in a way that does no harm to other people and to the environment, that we are all connected and we are not only connected to one another, but we are connected to the environment. If we allow all of the bees to die because of um, pesticides and because of the way in which farming is done, humanity will have no food. 
we will die out as a species, along with most of the other species of the Earth. If we pollute, we may, during that, that time where we're polluting, we may survive and feel as if we're thriving. But ultimately, the impact of that is going to be negative on us and on others. So for me, there, it has to come with that balance. You think about the scales of, uh, the, above the courts of justice. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's my happiness, my independence, all of the my, my, my stuff. But that has to be balanced with the our, us collectively, us within the context of living on this planet. And there has to be a balance. So we're not more important than anybody else. We're not less important. We are as important. And we each have the responsibility to make sure that, that we do no harm and that we take our role in terms of making this place a better place to live. And if we all chose to do that, then the world would be a very different place. You know, I've, I, and, and unfortunately, this virus has, has uh, um, uh, dominated the news, so we don't know what's going on elsewhere in the world as far as some of these skirmishes between peoples that <laughs> were going on uh, before this thing really started going. I mean, I don't know if maybe they all caught it and died uh, or they're all sick and they have to wait until they get well to go back to fighting, you know, uh, or, or what the deal is with some of these other stories that we had heard over and over again. By the way, just as a side note, I have always enjoyed, for example, uh, watching here in the States, watching Sky News, because it gave a different perspective on what's going on in the world. I loved BBC News when we carried it here on this station because it gave stories that you didn't get anywhere else in the in our national media. And I think that that's part of part of the problem is that we for whatever reasons, I mean in the United States uh, we have this independent streak <laughs> that says We're going to do it our way. I don't care how you've done it. I don't care if it was successful. We're going to find our own way. For some reason, we can't seem to learn from other countries, from other people of other ideas. It's just just amazing to me uh, how much further along we would be if we could just say, gee, you know, the Bangladeshi, they did, they had this issue and they they solved that problem or, 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 or the, the, the Scots. Look what they did with that. And, and, and amazing. Why don't we incorporate that into our thing over here? We, we just, for whatever reason, we just don't seem to, as a nation, and especially as a government, we just don't seem to to be able to do that. I want to take a quick break here. Thriving, Not Surviving is the title of the book. Gina Gardner is my guest. All the way from the UK via Zoom. The five steps, I beg your pardon, the five secret pathways uh, to happiness, success, and fulfillment. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And we'll be right back, I guarantee you. Tell me your stories. I'll do my best to understand you. And we're back. I told you we were coming back because we're thriving here on the program with our guest, uh, Gina Gardner, and we're talking about thriving to not surviving. We're not going to survive anymore. We're going to thrive. We're going to move on to the next level of existence. Come on, let's do this thing. And now is the time to implement it. When 
<laughs> when things are shut down and nobody's doing the normal stuff, let's come up with some new things that we can talk about and we can do that will make this a better world for everybody. And Gina, first of all, thanks for staying with us here on the program. I wanted to ask you about these five pathways. These these are secret pathways. So we'll 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 talk very softly. We won't we won't uh, we won't let anybody else but you and me know these secrets. Okay. Uh, one of your secrets here. One of the secret pathways is right up my alley because it's the uh, it, it's the focus of my book, Choices: Five Steps to Life. And, uh, of course, that's step number, that's a pathway number four in your book. Uh, you have belief, love, success, choice, and then purpose and fulfillment. Uh, let's talk a little bit about belief to start with. We'll move on to some of the others in a moment. Um, what beliefs are, are we referring to? Those that we get from our religious institutions as far as doctrine and dogma? Or are we talking about those concepts that have framed our mental, physical, and emotional makeup as an individual and why we make the decisions or choices that we make? They're both, really. Okay. So as we grow, we develop a set of beliefs, blueprints to this is how life should be. And those beliefs are very often shaped by comments from our parents we're often conditioned by our parents and by school and by our peers to have beliefs about ourselves. Are we worthy? Are we enough? Are we um, clever? Are we clumsy? Um, beliefs about other people and the way in which we should operate with other people. Beliefs about money, about religion, about um, culture, sex, food. Money about every aspect, uh, beliefs about every aspect of life. And our beliefs generate um, our thinking. Because whatever we believe is how we filter the world. And we look for evidence to make that belief so. But the reality is that those beliefs can be changed. So I gave you the example of um, a the dog and of Roger Bannister. Mm -hmm. Roger Bannister achieving his four minute mile challenged people's belief that if you ran that fast, you'd die. If you go back through history and interestingly, you were talking about, you know, that in the US you don't learn from other cultures. If only we learned from history, um, there are so many lessons that if we'd learned them, life would be very, very different. But, but ultimately if you, live your life without challenging those beliefs, then you're going to live a life that's, you know, you've always done, do what you've always done. You always end up with what you always had. So our beliefs for me are the fundamental starting point. And the reason I had these five pathways is because whether I was working with an individual life coaching or a couple working with both of them or a team or a whole organization, we went through each of those pathways in some shape or form didn't always start in that order but ultimately our beliefs about ourselves are what colors uh, the world mm. and you know if you've been brought up to think that money doesn't grow on trees then you've got to work yourself to death in order to earn money and other people are lucky and i'm unlucky that becomes your reality 
So they did some experiment uh, about people who believed they were lucky. So they had a group of 100 people and they asked them to predetermine where on the continuum they were between being extremely unlucky and extremely lucky. They then set up an experiment and in the experiment um, there was a car park about 100 uh, yards away from the front door of a house and each person completely separately arrived at the car park and walked along the path where they had put down uh, denominations of money and some were, were easy to see and some were you know, semi-hidden. Without exception, the unlucky people didn't see it at all. And the further they were on the continuum to being lucky, the more of the money they found. Mm. Now, isn't it interesting that if you believe you're lucky, then you will see opportunities open up that if you don't believe you're lucky, you won't even notice they're there. Interesting. So our beliefs create our reality. But those beliefs are, they're, they're not cast in stone. Just in the same way that those runners suddenly recognize that, yeah, I can run that fast and not die. You know, go back through history at one time, you'd have been burnt as a heretic if you said that the world was round. And that they had theories for the, the world being flat in the Middle Ages, um, and that they could explain the wind, the tide, everything. But then there was a certain body of, uh, you know, numbers of people who started to recognize that the earth wasn't flat because brave people moved away from the shoreline and realized that they weren't going to fall off the end of the earth. And then suddenly it was laughable to think that the world was flat. We have beliefs that in a 50, 100 years time, we will laugh at or they will laugh at because they have learned something different. And it's perfectly possible to challenge your beliefs, keep the ones that empower you, and actually ditch the ones that don't and recalibrate those beliefs in exactly the same way that I did in that firewalk situation. I believed I couldn't possibly cope on my own going to America in a wheelchair. What rubbish that was. Because as soon as I believed I could, I could and I did. So beliefs for me start the thing. And then you go into relationships because as I said earlier, every relationship we have with other people is a relation, it's a reflection of the relationship we have with ourselves. So if you think about, do you have the same criteria that you use to judge how well you do? And is that the same criteria that you use for everybody else? Because it's really common for people to say to other people, and really believe it, that was brilliant, well done. Mm -hmm. But if somebody says that to them, they say, oh, no, it, no, it was all right, but it wasn't great. Mm -hmm. But we have a very different set of criteria for ourselves. And so for me, it's about treat yourself as a, a best friend, no better, but no worse. Yeah. And that if you do that and you've got a, a strong sense of being um, enough, then you won't put up with people bullying you. Bullies probably won't try because they'll recognize that you're not being a victim, that you will be able to be assertive and you won't need to be aggressive, that you will create loving interdependent relationships rather than toxic dependent relationships. So relationships, whether they're personal or professional, 
the same principles apply. Then we go into success. Now, interestingly, most people don't define what success looks like. So when they meet it, they don't know because they've changed the criteria already. And as many people in my experience fear success as fear failure. How many people do you know who sabotage themselves as soon as things start to get good? And so looking at the whole issue of what motivates you, um, how do you manage when things go wrong? Because the only difference between highly successful people and, and the general population is that highly successful people believe they can and they keep going when life gets tough. They don't give up. So Dyson, he makes vacuum cleaners in, I don't know whether you have them in the US. Oh, yes. He is, uh, was de designated last week the richest um, entrepreneur in the UK. Wow. Do you know how many prototypes he made for his first vacuum cleaner before it worked? I'm going to say probably several hundred. 2,000. Wow. Oh. So if he'd stopped at 1,999, he wouldn't be the multi-billionaire that he is now. He kept going even when everybody else told him he was mad because he had this absolute faith that he would find a way to make it work. Well, Edison has the same uh, moniker, if you will, <clears throat> here in the States, uh, uh, even though, you know, that someone asked him, uh, how many times did you fail before you came up, succeeded with the light bulb? He said, I never failed. I just found 990 ways that it didn't work. And that's one of the things that I'm going to toss out here real quick before we move on. And that is that there's some words I'm trying to get rid of, and not just in my vocabulary, but in everyone's. Right and wrong, success, failure, their experiences, their opportunities. They're not good or bad. They just are. And it takes me back to that, that Chinese, the story of the Chinese farmer and his son. And a neighbor comes over one day and says, hey, how are things going? He says, well, uh, my son was working with the horse, uh, with our horse, and it took off with a, a gang of a bunch of other horses, uh, you know, a herd of other horses. And the neighbor says, oh, that's, that's too bad. And the, neighbor, and the father says, well, the farmer says, well, who's to say whether it's good or bad? Well, the next day he comes back over again and uh, says, how are things going today? He says, well, uh, my, my son found the horse and the other horses, the other uh, members of the herd came along with him. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. That's good. He says, well, you know, who's to say whether it's good or bad? Well, the story progresses. The next day, the story is, well, my son broke his leg uh, working with the first horse. That's bad. Well, who's to say? Next day... Uh, comes over and says, well, how's things going? Says, well, the uh, military was by uh, doing uh, conscripting people. They wouldn't take my son because, of course, he had a broken leg. Well, that's good. And again, it just goes on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the bottom line that I, I come to is this, that they are not dualistic. This is not a dualistic world if we choose not to make it so. They're just experiences. We don't isn't, fail. We, we learn how not to do stuff. Isn't it interesting, though, that if you ask people, have you learned more when things have gone well, more than when things didn't go as you planned? And for me, um, failure, we've got to learn to fail better. 
it's not that we don't need to fail. We need to learn from that failure in order to move it on and to do something different. And I think as soon as you take on board that you are, um, that you are learning, it's no longer a failure in the accepted sense. Well, I have to tell you that that uh, in my life and in my experience thus far, it's it's been um, some incredible learning experiences. And, and one in particular that I remember I had um, back in the early 90s. I was working for this religious station. We were broadcasting from the transmitter site. The boss and I had gone through the process of renovating the area, the interior, uh, putting up new counter space for a console and the equipment and so on and so forth. And uh, as we finished up, he says, now, I don't want you to be moving any of the furniture without getting my permission first. I, I don't know what that was all about. Obviously, a control freak, but be that as it may, I said, OK, fine, no problem. Well, I was in the midst of training a new uh, a new board op who became a very good friend of mine. And uh, I had moved this huge cabinet because I was vacuuming. I was cleaning the floor. I was vacuuming the floors. Speaking of Dyson. And um, he happened to show up. My boss showed up. And he went ballistic because I had moved this cabinet. So he took me into the transmitter room and he reamed me a new one. And I couldn't sleep for three days. It was that horrific. And I had completely forgotten about why I had moved the cabinet. And finally, three days later, I called him up and I said, I need you to come out here. We need to talk. And um, he did. And I explained to him, I said, you know, I haven't slept for three days. And uh, I completely forgot why I moved that cabinet, which I know you told me that I wasn't supposed to move anything. Rearrange, rearrange is really what he was talking about. Yeah. I moved that cabinet so that I could vacuum. He, he couldn't have been more apologetic. Well, many years later in 2000, what was it? 2004, five, I think it was 2005. Uh, I was working for a different station. However, the ownership of that station had purchased the religious station with the same general manager. And uh, I was in charge as the ops manager of making sure that we got all of the equipment hooked up right, making sure that it worked. So I'm being told by the uh, automation company as well as the switching company, oh, no, you can't do that because blah, 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 blah. This is what I was told. And I tell the chief engineer, no, we can't make the change until we get the new code. And he was just like, you got to be kidding me. And eventually what happened was he quit because I wouldn't let him do his job. So I'm called into the G, the, that GM's office and the old GM was sitting in a chair in the conference room. And I'm going, you know, I've kind of been here before. So what I did was I took what is called an open body posture, put both feet on the floor, hands on my knees, and I just sat straight up and I had to do everything I could to keep from laughing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the old, the, the, the general manager of that station, he just went on and he's circling the conference table and circling and, and the other guy's just sitting there watching. And the guy's just going on and on and on and on and on. Didn't fire me. And I, because I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, I didn't take it in. And eventually the chief engineer did come back. And then it turns out the information that I was being given, though accurate in terms of what I'd been told, wasn't entirely true. 
And that's what I told the chief engineer. I says, look, I cannot go forward based upon, I have to go forward based upon the information that I am given. And until yeah. that's updated, I can't move forward. And I realize that frustrates you, but there's nothing I can do about it. I am responsible for making sure that everything is working. So anyway, the long and the short of it was that second experience I learned from the first one. And, um, and I, you know, and again, I told the, the manager in that little meeting with the conference room, a conference table, I said, look, this is what I was told by these two companies. And that's what I'm sticking by. Now, if you want to override me and let the chief engineer do what he wants to do, then that's fine. It's not my station. I'm just here to, to facilitate. But, you know, it's up to you. He left things as they were, and finally I got the go-ahead, and we made the transition to the new equipment. But it's one of those things, uh, uh, Gina, that I don't think a lot of people realize. Many people get caught up in um, that emotional cycle, and they can't get out. And that's where the second secret pathway of love is. you know. And we're not talking about the mushy, you know, uh, intimate love or anything like that. We're just talking about just, <laughs> I'm going to put another word in there, human compassion and understanding. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about that. People talk about love being pink and fluffy, unconditional love, and they have an assumption that means I've got to be a doormat or you've got to let people do what they want. But if you love somebody, and I use the analogy of a best friend, you want the best for them and the best from them. You have high expectations of them. But at the same time, if they don't get it right, that you are forgiving, uh, but you do expect them to learn from that. I mean, love is about really recognizing the value of somebody else, truly listening, truly seeing who they are. But it's also about being very clear with them. And going back to my principal days with children, um, I would say to them, and you know, this is what we expect from you. And I care about you too much to expect less than your very best. So you, it's up to you to start taking back to responsibility, forgiving as your best, because the only person you're truly harming is you. But again, it comes back to you have to love yourself first. You have to have an appreciation that you are a unique, amazing human being with many talents and you've got wobbly bits and all and bits that you need to develop. And if you've got confidence in yourself, then you can develop those bits and accept that, that you are not broken. And if you have love and compassion for other people, then you want the best for them and you expect the best from them. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, one of the lessons that I have learned, and I learned it thankfully early on in my career, was that I wanted everybody to know how I did what I did. I wanted to pass that all on because I learned very early on that if I didn't, and I didn't share what I knew, I was going to be stuck doing it for a very long time, and I wouldn't be able to go on and do new things. Yes. And that's very important to me. And I want other people to do the same. And I will tell you that we have somebody here at this particular station who I trained how to do some editing. Uh, and, um, and he's gotten more and more proficient to where I was listening to the station one day. And I heard this one piece of production. And I'm going, that sounds good. I don't remember editing that. 
<laughs> and I, I, I found out, of course, it had been him, obviously, because I hadn't done it. And I, I said, hey, that was fantastic. Thank you. That was a great job. Uh, yeah, I thought it was mine. Uh, and, um, you know, I was very appreciative. I'm, I mean, I wasn't trying to take credit by any means. I knew that I, I guess I taught him right and he progressed in his own right. And that's really what it's all about is is giving people but, opportunity. But isn't it interesting for me, if you step into your genuine power, if you as a, a, a manager, as a leader, as you if you um, operate out of enlightened leadership, a big part of that is recognizing the potential in other people um, and then nurturing it and developing it so that they are able to develop into their best selves. And I think when we step into our genuine power, we rather than diminishing someone and making them feel small, I mean, I think the need to be seen to be right is so highly overrated mm -hmm. that ultimately um, that by by recognizing our own power and nurturing the power in others, that we end up each in their own way being stronger and collectively um, being able to achieve things that you wouldn't have been able to dream of if everybody had been kept in their place yeah. um, if somebody wanted to feel important. Yeah. You sometimes wonder why you have disgruntled employees. <laughs> and a lot of times it's because the people above them and or around them are too busy protecting, quote unquote, their turf. And I think it would behoove those people to remember who owns the company, you know. Uh, now, you know, my view is that your ego should be left at home under your pillow with your pajamas. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well. Jenny Gardner, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us. I know there's a whole lot more we can talk about. Thriving, not surviving, the five secret pathways to happiness, success, and fulfillment. And, of course, there are uh, three others that we have not uh, touched upon. But I think it would behoove you to pick up a copy of the book and learn more about success, choice, as well as purpose and fulfillment. And um, just remember, this is not the end. There is more. And this book, of course, is available, obviously, at Amazon and so forth, as well as on your website. And what is that website? So we can uh, let people know where to go to find out more about you and the work that you do. So genuinely hyphen and the word you.com. So genuinely hyphen you.com. And if they're interested in enlightened leadership, then enlightenedleadership.co. So genuinely hyphen you.com and enlightenedleadership.co. And those are what are on the on the wall behind you there, big old banner and behind you there. Uh, and we certainly encourage people to go there. We'll be linked to your website as well so that people can uh, go straight there from as they're listening to this interview. And we certainly thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. And should you ever find yourself here in Santa Barbara when we get the chance to start moving around again, uh, we'd love to have you in studio to continue the conversation. That would be absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. I've really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. I have three final questions for you, but I want to remind our listeners that we are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com as well as the uh, podcasts 
on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and many other locations. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, PayPal and Patreon accounts are there for you. And we thank you so much in advance for everything that you uh, are going to do for us. We'll take energetic uh, support as well. Uh, Three final questions uh, for you. And again, thank you for giving us so much time. Question number one is, who is Gina Gardner? Who am I? Um, I am, that's a really interesting question. Um, I am someone who is passionate about helping people step into their power. Um, And I am someone that loves life and recognize that life isn't a spectator sport. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I have a mission and my mission is to positively impact on a million people in the next five years through the development of enlightened leadership. And that's leadership with integrity, compassion, and the courage to do what's right rather than what's expedient. And my big dream is that as that becomes established, that we will then run programs for young people and for parents, and it will become the start of a foundation that will go on long after I'm gone. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, my life's purpose is to help people feel empowered, to to help people recognize they have endless um, potential and that by stepping into theirs, they can help other people find and step into theirs. And so it will ripple out like a stone going into a pond. Number one international best-selling author, Gina Gardner, and Thriving, Not Surviving, The Five Secret Pathways to Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment. And I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast podcast, love to lol.